guess we didn't do too bad. <clears throat> Friends, as we gather this morning, we have a particular problem, an issue. There's a verse in the Bible that is problematic, difficult. It confronts us, causes us to stagger, if you will, to stumble even. It causes us to question whether or not it's actually true. That is inspired by God. Did God really say that? Is it really possible? Can that verse really become a reality? Perhaps we're reading it wrong. Perhaps we're misunderstanding what it means. Perhaps we need to lessen its weight. You know, um, smooth its sharp edges. We need to dull its blow. Perhaps it's just outdated and old. You know, it's not in step with modern thinking. Perhaps it just needs to be cut out and removed. What verse do I have in mind? Well, it's not the verse we're going to consider this morning, but another that is like it. Hebrews 12.14 says this, Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness, for, which, for without which no one, no one, will see the Lord. In, in short, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you are not holy, then you will never see God. Jesus said something similar in the Sermon on the Mount as He opens up that glorious sermon. He says, the pure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know if you're like me this morning, but I don't feel very pure. I know that I'm not pure. I know that I'm not holy. So what are we to make of this text? And I know that these verses have been used by some to put upon you a, a crushing weight a sharp knife, if you will, a nag in your soul where you feel you will never be able to measure up to. Friends, as we consider this text, the question remains, are we holy? Are we, as we'll consider this morning, to be holy as He is holy? As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Really, Peter? How is this possible? 
How is this possible in a day and age where holiness is set aside and we live life the way we want to live? When the moral compass of our hearts and lives is, I do whatever I want to do and no one can tell me differently. How does that measure up to what God is going to say in His Word today? Friend, this is what God's Word confronts us with. I hope your mind is confronted with it today. And my hope is that you will be transformed by it. So as we return to 1 Peter this morning, Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to sinners who have been called by God, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy. He is writing to men and women who are under the weight of living in a fallen world. Which means that they are facing various trials. We learned that a couple weeks ago in the general context of this letter. Is that he is writing to Christians who are suffering various trials. Whether it be sickness, whether it be disease, whether it be temptation, whether it be external trials and temptations. He is writing to people to equip them to endure these trials. To not lose hope or to despair, but to continue trusting Christ. And all the more, he says, that the day draws near. And so, friend, this morning, are you weary from the load of sin? Are you exhausted from the constant battle against sin in your heart and life? Are you weak and wounded from the fiery darts of the evil one? Friend, if this is you this morning, then this letter was written for you and for me. It was written down for our sake. And so let's turn there now and consider what God has to say to us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 13 through 21. I invite you to turn there, have the Bible open. I say this often, you will be utterly bored with yourself if you do not have the Bible in front of you this morning. And so do yourself a favor during this time, open the Bible and turn, if you're not familiar with the Bible, to page 1014. Uh, I encourage you to grab that pew Bible in front of you. You don't have a copy of God's Word this morning. And we're going to be considering this morning in our time together, verses 13 through 21. Verses 13 through 21. Hear God's Word this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
God bless his word this morning. So what is Peter's point? As Christians, you are to hope in your future life with Christ. Friends, you, you are to have a hope in your future life in Christ, which changes the way we conduct our lives. Our hope in the grace of God transforms the way we live. In short, Peter is saying that Christians are to be holy by prizing God above all things. Christians are to be holy by prizing God above all things. Now, I say that and I know that that is not new. I hope if you've been a Christian a while that that exhortation to holiness is not revolutionary for you this morning. That it's not eye-opening this morning for you. But what I want you to understand this morning is that exhortation to be holy. We're going to argue from Scripture that truth. But we also want to give you tools to progress in that holiness. To fight sin in your life and to grow and to pursue holiness. And so my purpose this morning, the purpose of this message is to exhort you as God's people to live holy lives before a holy God. It is the Christian duty to pursue holiness. I hope to show you this morning that there's no such thing as a Christian who is not in pursuit of holiness. So this morning, if you are not pursuing holiness and you claim the name of Christ, well, I hope to... Uh, change your understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Jesus. So the question is, how does our conversion affect the way we think and live? In short, we are to be holy. And so our text outlines really just two uh, ways we are to pursue Christ in preparation for His return. So our pursuit of holiness is a preparation for His return. We are preparing for the return of Christ. So holiness is not a means to salvation. It isn't a means to appeasing God's wrath. It isn't access to heaven. Okay, I'll say this every way. You don't go to heaven by being holy. All right, By getting yourself right before God. No, God makes you holy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can go to heaven. Right? Your access is the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness. So we don't want to be confused about this this morning. And so our text outlines us two ways. First, by setting your hope fully on Christ, by pursuing holiness. And then secondly, by conducting yourself in reverence before God into that day. We're going to consider those two points. But before we do, I want to clarify something. I want to be so clear here because I think we can get really derailed easily. Peter begins this letter. Look with me in verse 13. Not the letter, but this paragraph, verse 13, with the word therefore. Peter starts with therefore, and we must begin there as well. For all of these exhortations to holiness, there's something that has to come before that. Uh, there's something that came before all of these exhortations to holiness, something that ground ourselves. And so if you have not turned from your sins and trusted in the finished work of Christ this morning, if you are not a Christian, none of this is going to be possible this morning. In fact, I do not want you to lay these uh, commands upon yourself if you do not consider yourself to be a faithful follower of Christ this morning. If you self-consciously have never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, do not lay the command to be holy upon yourself. For you will stumble and fall. 
It will be a hopeless pursuit if verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1 is not true for you. Namely, if you have not been born again to a living hope. If you have not been called by God to righteousness and living a life of repentance and faith, none of this is possible for you this morning. And so I want to begin with you. I want to start with you, non-Christian, this morning and say and exhort you to call. I want to call you to faith in Christ. That the only way that you can stand before a holy God isn't by making yourself holy, but by a holiness that is not from you. We are a holy people only because God has redeemed us through the precious blood of His Son, we'll consider in verses 18 and 19. Friend, if it is your desire to turn and repent, then repent now. Do not wait. If you recognize and are under the weight of conviction of your sin, do not wait. Don't be like, you know, I'm going to do that later when I go home, you know, in the car. You know, I'll look in that rearview mirror and I'll, I'll confess in there. No, no, no. Don't put it off. Right now, you, you can, as I'm talking, you can, just, you can just cry out to God for forgiveness. Turn and trust in Christ, His death and His resurrection for your life. Trust that His death saves you, that the gospel is true for you. Friend, repent and believe. And all of this can be yours today. And so, brothers and sisters, as, as those non-Christians just sort of deal with themselves and their sin, as they hear this and just be praying for them, I hope to turn the attention on you as Christians, on those who have sought to pursue Christ and faithfully turn. And so let's look at verse 13 in our first point. It's very clear. I, I, I'm not coming up with this. Look at what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so this, this section, verses 12 through 21, really just has two exhortations, two main commands. One, set your hope fully on God. Number two comes in verse 17. Uh, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. So those are sort of the two commands upon you this morning. First, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Now, how do we do this? Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark. Uh, he tells us, he outlines for us really four ways this happens. Number one, he says, by sobering up. By sobering up. A sober mind, Peter says, prepares you for holy living. He says, therefore, what? Such, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, just so you know, like your pastor's not just coming up with this crazy stuff on his own, uh, there should be a footnote there at the um, preparing your minds for action. If you, if you have one of the pew Bibles, it should be there. And notice the little footnote there at the bottom. In the Greek, it says, Gird, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, thankfully, the translators didn't uh, translate that. You'd be like, what does it mean to gird up the loin of my mind? Um, it's a difficult translation. Uh, in essence, the, the ancient folks, they, you know, Lord, wore long, you know, robe-like outfits, and if they were going to go somewhere, kind of prepare to do some work, if they were going to run, if they were going to walk quickly, they would tie, they would gird up, they would tie up their robe. They would, you know, because obviously you know, it would be a little difficult to run in a robe. And, uh, and so they would tie it up. They would get themselves ready for action. And so what Peter is saying is, is like, pull up the pants of your mind. Like, get your pants pulled up and get ready to, for action. That is, get your mind ready for action. Get your mind ready to do something, to do some work. And so we understand here that we are to prepare ourselves and our minds. 
this is a sort of similar exhortation that Peter uses in 1 Peter 4, 7. In 1 Peter 4, 7, you don't have to turn there unless you're like got quick fingers. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter kind of helps interpret his own uh, mental metaphor here by saying, sober your mind. Sober up your mind, right? Now, Peter is not talking about drunkenness, okay? Although you could apply this to drunkenness, but drunkenness would just really fall short of what Peter is saying. You know, Peter's saying, yeah, like, don't be drunk, duh, all right? But, but he's talking to more sobriety of mind, having a mind that is active, right? A lazy mind is a vulnerable mind. In our day and age, we have seen the effects, right? You remember, you know, maybe you used to tell your children, you know, that TV's going to rot your brain. That TV's going to rot your brain, uh, right? You used to, right? And it's true, right? It's true. That, that, that little sucker will, will make you the laziest person. And not because, you know, you're sitting back in the lazy boy eating potato chips. That's not what I mean. I mean your mind is turned off and you just absorb like a sponge everything that comes at you. You don't think. That's why reading is, you really it's hard to be passive in reading. Now, now I know you can do that. You can just like read the, page, the words on the page and, you know, really be unaffected by it. But generally, reading is an active uh, activity of the mind. It stimulates the mind. It makes the mind grow. And so when we are lazy in our thinking, we will be lazy in our living is what Peter is saying. Lazy minds lead to lazy living. And so we're not actively thinking about God and about his word and about who he is. Well then friends, we can't expect to pursue holiness very well. So Peter says, get ready, get your mind ready, sober up. But he goes on to say, secondly, by knowing who you are. So, so how do we set our hope fully on the grace of God? How do we live a hope-filled life? It's by knowing who we are. How do we pursue holiness? It begins uh, by sobering up and then by knowing who we are. Look with me at verse 14. Look what he says here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So notice what he says. The exhortation to holiness is grounded in that first little phrase, as obedient children. Peter does not say in this text, like obedient children. He doesn't see, be, be like those obedient children in your house, right? Yeah, right. Um, right? He doesn't say, be like obedient children. He says, as obedient children. In short, Peter is saying, act like what you are. You are obedient children, therefore, act like it. And friends, this is the main ethical, uh, ethical exhortation in the New Testament. So you can go to the writings of Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, all ethical exhortations are grounded in our identity. God never calls us to be something that we are not. Let me just illustrate this from God's word. Uh, first in Ephesians 1.14, God says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
So it is our election in Christ, our call from the foundation of the world. Notice what he says, that we should be holy and blameless. Like, we are destined to holiness. That's who we are. Paul is saying that God has called you to be holy, not to unholiness. That is the goal of redemption, is holiness. From eternity past, God has purposed, purposed your holiness. So your holiness rests in God. Paul goes on in Ephesians in, in, in chapter 5 and verse 1 and says this, Therefore, be imitators of God. Right? So, so similar to what Peter is saying here, be holy, right? If we're going to imitate God, God's holy, we're going to imitate him, we're going to be holy like he's holy. What does he say? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul's point is a little bit nuanced, a little bit different, uh, in the sense that because you're loved by God, be holy. Uh, here, Peter's just saying, you're a child of God, therefore be holy. Or as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Friend, I want you to understand this morning, uh, in Christ, your identity is essential to your pursuit of holiness. So that is, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, what your identity is, uh, you will not do well pursuing holiness. You will struggle. And often the reason why we struggle with besetting sins in our life, the reason why we can't overcome sin is because we have an identity crisis. We have an identity problem. We have forgotten who we are. That we are children of the Most High God. And that our holiness is what we were created to be. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you were created for these things, to do good works, to be holy. We understand and trust our personal, our positional holiness is by justification. We are holy, set apart. This is our new identity. Holiness in the Bible means to be set apart. And God has done the setting apart. Now, I want to be clear here, now, because I, I, I always fear, uh, because, because pastors and preachers are well-meaning, but uh, they often lay the weight on, on their members, and, 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 I, and I can do this as well, uh, and I want to be clear about something. Peter is not saying that Christians will be perfect in this life. So I just want to be clear, lest you misunderstand what this exhortation to holiness means. It means we pursue holiness. We strive for holiness. Remember what the author of Hebrews says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He doesn't say be perfect without, no, he says strive for perfection. And so Peter is not saying here in this text that Christians are perfect. He is saying that our pursuit in God is godliness, literally God-likeness. He does not teach nor believe one can be perfectly holy as God is holy this side of heaven. All right. So if that's the burden that's been laid on you by some preacher somewhere, uh, let me lift that up from you this morning and say that only Jesus was perfect in this fallen world. And so our hope is in the perfection, perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, now, now listen, don't use that as an excuse for your laziness. 
Don't use that. Be like, you know, God, you know, I'm just a sinner and I'm just going to sin. No, no. Number one was prepare, get your mind sobered up. Right? Sober up your thing. That's not sober thinking. That's a drunk talking right there. Sober up your mind and pursue holiness. Here's a really helpful quote. John Newton, uh, the famous pastor from only England, um, who penned the, the hymn Amazing Grace. You know that hymn. Uh, he wrote this encouraging note in a letter to Reverend Joshua uh, Simons in, in 1781. He wrote this just encouraging. L- listen to this, brothers and sisters. If you will look for a holiness that shall leave no room for the workings of corruption and temptation... So if you're, you're out looking for, so, so if your preacher's been telling you about a holiness, right, that doesn't have temptations and corruptions, Newton says, then you look for what God has nowhere promised and for what is utterly inconsistent with our present state. And then he goes on to say this, for my own part, I believe the most holy people feel the most evil. Friend, has that been your experience? It's been mine. The closer I draw myself to God in holiness, the more utterly unholy I feel. Friend, if you're confused about that, go into this afternoon in the bulletin, Isaiah, uh, right there, the scripture reading that Nathan read at the beginning, and just look at how Isaiah responds when he goes before God. Okay? Isaiah was a righteous dude. Okay, He wasn't like this like wicked man. But as he drew near to, to God's holiness, he responded in what way? I am a man of unclean lips. Like, I should not be here. I am in the wrong place. And friends, that is true of us. As we draw near to God, we recognize, like, this is, this, I am in foreign ground here. I should not be here. But thanks be to God, he has drawn near. So thirdly, here in this section, uh, how are we to pursue holiness, setting our hope on God by being like God? Right, the main exhortation in this passage is to be like God. To say that to be holy is to be like God. Right, God's holiness, and this is the point I want you to to see from this passage. God's holiness is the standard of your holiness. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Uh, He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Notice how he grounds our holiness in God, right? That is separating yourself from the world. Not that you're living apart from the world, but you're living separate from the way the world practices things. You have a new way, and your life should look and feel different, as he said. That's what he's saying. The Christian life should look weird in this world. It should feel strange. <laughs> you should not look normal, right? Um, you uh, should see. So he's beginning with the negative. He's saying, look, this is not what you are. Don't be conformed any longer to this, but be transformed, as Paul says, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Know what you once were, as Paul writes in Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And friend, I just wonder, do you agree with that? Like, are you like constantly, when you are confronted with who you once were, like, yeah, that's me. Or are you trying to like, well, you know, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that bad. I mean, there, you know, there was always these other people who were worse than me. Do you agree with this assessment of you, that you were once this, that you were once ignorant? Right? Let the weight of that sit upon your soul. 
that you were living in ignorance. But yet now we have a new standard. God is our standard. We do not define what holy living is. Now, I know it's really hip and cool in our day and age to define what is in and what's out. What is right and what is wrong, right? It pervades the air that we breathe. Everything we are exposed to in this fallen world will tell you and try to convince you that you can live however you want to live. And that there's no one more authoritative than you. That you are the ultimate authority in your life. Not your parents, not your bosses, not anyone in society. And especially preachers and church members cannot tell you how to live holy life. This is what John means when he writes in 1 John 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One of the implications of this passage of holiness, well, we're going to consider next week. So Peter's kind of laying some foundation work here, and then he's going to build on it with some further exhortation. He says, be holy. One of the ways you be holy is by loving others sacrificially. And we're going to consider that next week. He's like, love one another. Uh, like, you know, again, our world has a weird view of love. It has a messed up, twisted, and, and, and manipulated world view of love. So we want to understand what does the Bible say about love. Then finally here, number four in this sort of first point, the, the fourth sort of way that we set our hope upon the grace of God in our lives and pursue holiness is fourthly by meditating on the holiness of God. God's holiness is the motivation for your holiness. Right? As we sit and ponder God's holiness, we are motivated to be like God. Look at verse 16 with me. Since it is written, so, so Peter here is grounding all of his exhortations in the Old Testament scriptures. And we hit on that point last week. You know, if you're neglecting your Old Testament Bible, um, you, you are, you're hurting yourself here. Um, and so you shall be holy, for I am holy. Another way, you know, we could say this is that because I am holy, you will be holy. That's what God is saying in his word. You see the difference? The, the, the weight and thrust of this, the motivation for your holiness is God's holiness, right? The, the promise that God gives is the motivation for our pursuit of holiness. He says, you will be holy, right? We often take that as a command, like, be holy as I am holy, right? We take it like that. That's not what God is saying. He says, as I am holy, you shall be holy. That is, you will be holy. There is no wiggle room in that. Like, this is what you will be. That's why Paul can say, as we looked at earlier in Ephesians 1.3, that he chose us before in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. How is it that God can destine people to holiness and blamelessness if, there, if we could short-circuit that, if we could get outside that? No, our destiny is holiness, and that truth motivates us to be holy. Like, we're not afraid. You know, a lot of the... You know, a lot of the one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons we fail in holiness is because we're afraid to fail. We're afraid to fail. We're afraid to fall. And so we say, you know what, I'm just not going to mess with it. I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, I'm not going to deal with my anger because I know I'm just going to get angry again. I'm not going to fight against my anger because, you know, I'm just probably going to get angry again. 
And so we say, you know, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fail. Rather than saying like, you know what, no, I am going to be holy. I'm going to have victory over this one day. And so I'm going to fight this little sucker now. I'm going to kill this thing now while I can. I heard one pastor and I were meeting yesterday for breakfast and he was talking about just the encouragement. You know, often we look at, at, at accountability in a way where we say, you know, like we're always concerned that we're going to fail. And that's what we focus on is our failure. We just focus on like, you know, I'm gonna have, you know I failed, I failed. Someone's going to find out about my failure. Rather than leaning into our success. Yeah, we want to deal with our failures. But, but, but we don't celebrate like, do I see growth in my life? And is there measurable growth in your life? And friends, what is, brothers and sisters, what is your motive to be holy? God says that it should, it should be that you want to be like Him. The motive is that we want to be like God, not, not to impress God, not to please God. Do you desire to be where God is? I mean, are, are you able to reconcile, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Is that true for your life? Are you striving for holiness in your life? Are you motivated to grow? Brother, sister, if you're an unrepentant sin this morning, I know we kind of get confused on that. You know, because when we talk about holiness, I know what everybody's thinking. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Well, friends, there's two types of people in this world, and there's two types of people in this, this, this room. There's a general group, right? So generally, every human being is a sinner. So it's just sort of one category. Within that category, there, there are two, two groups within that category that broad umbrella category of sinner, okay? Repentant and unrepentant. So the Bible speaks of repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. A repentant sinner is one who is striving to put the deeds of the flesh to death, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's a repentant sinner, a constant turning from sin and forsaking sin and, and embracing Christ. A unrepentant sinner is one who says, yes, I recognize that sin, but I love the darkness more than I love the light. I love my sin more than I love Jesus. And if that is you this morning, if you claim the name of Christ this morning, and you are in unrepentant sin, if you are in the chains of addiction this morning, then come into the light. Do not hear this conversation about holiness and hide out in your sin. But come into the light. Confess your sins to one another. Come to me. Confess your sin. Not because I'm a priest or something, right? but because so that I can pray for you and encourage you to holiness. Live in the light. Do not hang out in your sin because your sin will kill you. That's what it wants to do. And so come into the light as he is in the light. Confess your sin today and be holy as God is holy. So as God's people, as Christians, you are to be holy. Let's look. Secondly, and this point will be fast, so if you're looking at your clock and you're like really nervous and you're sweating bullets, like I'm clearly sweating up here, um, you know, it's okay. We're going to get through this and, and I might not do it justice, but, but I'm going to hit the highlights. Number two, conduct yourselves with fear in your life. 
The, the second main exhortation sort of stemming from setting our hope fully on God is to live ourselves in fear. Look with me at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, here's the command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We've already considered that, that Peter has called them exiles, that is, they are sojourners in a fallen world. And so Peter's exhortation is clear. He's like, listen, you're living in a broken, fallen world, and you need to live with a sense of fear, a fear before God, a reverence before God. You are to conduct yourself. So what does this mean? Well, it begins, Peter says, by knowing that God is your Father. You know, as I was reading this text and, and as I was committing it uh, to memory, I, I was struck how often I would pass over that phrase, if you call on him as father. The weight of this passage rests upon that, that word, father. Do you call him your father? Do you call him your father? This is not by accident. Peter is saying you are a child of God. You are God's children. And as our Father, He will discipline His children if they rebel and disobey Him. I don't think Peter is talking about you know, some sort of eschatological end-time judgment here. I think he's talking about the discipline that the author of Hebrews talks about when he writes that it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his Father does not discipline? Right? So maybe if you had a dad who didn't discipline you, right? I would probably argue with you he didn't love you. And if he over-disciplined you in, in maybe sinful ways and abused you, uh, then he surely didn't love you. Right? So if I don't discipline my children, if I don't, if I don't tell my child, like, hey, don't climb up on the stove when it's on, that, that probably go, won't go well for you. If I don't, like, tell them, like, scream at them, like, don't do that, does that mean I don't love them? That means I love them. Right, and so when God disciplines us, it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It means he loves us. God's discipline, his chastening of his people is a measure of God's love for us. Peter goes on to say that God is not only our father, but he is our judge. And so he can, combines those two ideas together, that God is our father and that he is our judge, that God will assess our lives. This is why we have fear. We have fear because God knows what we do in secret. God knows what we're thinking when we're standing in that checkout line and that person in front of us is really annoying us. You know, he knows what we're thinking and what's rolling around this sanctified mind when we stand and that, that little person up there is really having some trouble and you know, we really wanted to scream, we got things to do, get out of my way. We live our lives before a holy God, and he knows, and one day we will stand. But right now he chastens us. He convicts us. And so how often do you take the comforting convictions of sin and harden your hearts away from them? How often does that nag of the Spirit just get silenced in you? How often do you grieve the Spirit by not listening to the chastening words of the Father? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, Peter says, from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. 
And so as Christians, we live in light of the fact that God sees our sin, and so that propels us to holiness. There are no secrets. Number two, it continues as you daily remind yourselves of the costliness of your sin. And and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to camp out here because this is like the best part. I don't want to neglect the best part. Look at verse 18. Uh, If you're looking for some motivation to holiness this morning, verse 18 and 19 is it. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you ain't got nothing to do today, uh, you just hang out there and marinate in that. He begins with the negative, as is his custom. He starts with the bad news and moves to the good news. He says, listen, you were not, uh, you were not ransomed with junk. He begins by reminding them that they were purchased, that they were ransomed, that they were bought with a price and a very costly price. He is saying you have been liberated from the chains of sin. You have been set free. Why are you going back to it? Like the Israelites in the wilderness when they were complaining to Moses about the, uh, the food and the buffet laid before them. They didn't like the food God had provided. They didn't like the life that God had provided. And they began to complain and say, hey, you know what? Back in the day, when we were in Egypt, we used to eat melons and leeks. Like, we had it to go yeah, at all. Like It was good. We didn't have to work for our food. We didn't have to go out there and, and get our food off the ground. Like That's gross. Why are we eating food off the ground, Moses? What's up with that? I mean, isn't there a more sanitary way God can deliver his food to us every day? Moses looks at him and says, fool, you were making straw. You were making bricks with straw back there. What do you mean things were good? What do you mean things were good? You were slaves. You didn't get to do what you wanted to do. You were told what to do. And brothers and sisters, we act the same way. We think the good old, we talk about the good old days all the time. Man, the good old, what do you mean? Our lives should be progressively growing in sanctification that as we look back, we despair. We're like, oh man, I am so glad I am better. I am more like Christ today than I was then. And I don't even mean like before Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, before Christ, you were, you had inherited futile ways. Foolish ways from your forefathers. And, and, and we don't have time to, 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 to sit here, but I just want to say, say this to you. Through Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, the chain of generational sin has been broken in your life. So if your daddy was a drunk, the, the sin of generational sin has been broken. You don't have to think like God's put that upon you. Right? And there's so many things that we could do there right there, but 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 know that truth and, and, and look at that. He reminds them, he goes on to remind them in verse 19 that they were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Our salvation came at such a cost, such a high cost, that it causes us to propel in holiness. Friends, when we when we buy something, and particularly something of, of great value, we hold it at, we protect it, don't we? 
you know? Uh, I remember back in the day when car covers were really cool. <laughs> Right? You don't see that at often, right? But you know, when you bought a car, like you covered it up, you maybe put it in a garage. You like, you like, you don't want the hail to hit it. You don't want the birds to be doing their business on it, right? You want to keep it clean, right? You're vacuuming it out all the time, and, and you know, because you, you know, it costs a lot of money. And so did your redemption. And so you don't want to be out in the world getting it all stained up and getting it all dirty because your redemption is in Christ. It was bought with the blood of Christ. There is nothing greater than the blood of Christ. And all of our songs this morning, you can go back and look at them. I chose songs that highlighted the precious blood of Christ because that is our motive in holiness. That's the gas in the tank of our holiness. So as Christians, we live in fear throughout our lives. And we don't have time to look at everything else. And for that, you can do on your own. But there is great truth in here. And I want to be clear again that it is only possible to be holy through conversion, through being born again. Only through regeneration, what we call new birth, can this be possible. You cannot be holy apart from the work of redemption through the work of Christ. But Christians are to be holy we're not to be, we're not, it's not a call to perfection. It's not a call to say that we won't make mistakes, but it's a call to holiness. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we would take that call and that we would pursue holiness. I want to conclude with this from J.C. Ryle. In his work on holiness, which I highly recommend you to read that. If you need a good book to read, Fall's Coming, you know, like a fall reading book. Holiness, J.C. Ryle. It's very relatively inexpensive, and, and I can point you to some resources to get it. Ryle writes this, I have a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness, what we've been talking about, and, and the entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. He's in England, late 19th century, saying that. Okay? Like 120 years ago, Ryle is saying that. Like I think he could have written that today and it had been true. Politics or controversy or party split or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. The immense importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been, too, has been far too much overlooked. Worldly people sometimes complain with reason that religious persons, so-called, are not so admirable and unselfish and good-natured as others who make no profession of religion. Right? You've heard that, right? Uh, Christians are hypocrites. They're not very holy. Well, who are you holier than thou people? Yet sanctification in its place and proportion is quite as important as justification. He's saying that justification, our declared righteous before God, our declared accepted, you know, going to heaven, is just as important as our growth in holiness. Sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. So you might have right doctrine, he says, but if you don't have right living, it don't matter. He goes on to say, it is worse than useless it does not prove it is it, it does positive harm excuse me it is can't read it is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of this world 
as an unreal and hollow thing and brings religion into contempt. So friend, I, I wonder, do you have really good doctrine but really poor living? Do you know the Bible well? Like, do you know the doctrine of the Trinity? You can explain it. You know the gospel. You could, you could share it. But is your life completely the opposite? Is it lazy? Is your pursuit of holiness just sort of a lazy kind of half effort, kind of a, I'll get by with a little bit? Or is it a, like, I'm going to get the right pants on and, you know, the right shoes on, and I'm going to run the race set before me. And I'm going to pursue Christ above all things. Let us do this, and let it be known that we are holy people. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we stand in all of you today, and we rest again in the finished work of Christ. For we know that our holiness is not possible apart from the finished work of Christ. And as we'll sing in a moment, that there is a fountain filled with that it is through the precious blood of Christ that we have been ransomed for this new life. And that we know that we have been purchased with priceless blood, the priceless life of Christ. We have been called out of darkness into light. From eternity past, you have chosen us to be holy and blameless before you. And so may we run this race, may we pursue Christ by the power of the Spirit. May we grow in holiness. For your glory and our good, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's conclude our time this morning.